sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Holy smokes, folks. It's episode 24, the third installment in our discussion on the U.S. national debt. Now, so far, we've heard a little bit about the history of the national debt in the U.S., and we've heard a little bit about how the U.S.'s unique position as the world's reserve currency gives it some borrowing power that other nations haven't had in the past. So I thought to myself, what's a good historical parallel with the United States today? Was there a predominant global power that saw its position as the world's reserve currency or close to it challenged? And the country that I honed in on was the United Kingdom, which back in the 1800s was the world's preeminent naval industrial power. In the mid-1800s, after accruing a ton of debt in the Napoleonic Wars, they decided to pay it down with a series of budget cuts. And an interesting thing happened that I'm not going to tell you because that's what we have our guest for. This week, I invited PhD candidate at United Kingdom Cambridge University here to talk about a really interesting blog article he wrote on the after effects of Britain's 19th century austerity measure. Now, I'll be back at the end with commentary, but what I want you all to look out for is what does the current position in America on public investment when compared with that of China and history say about the road we're headed down. Listen and learn, compadre. So to start off, just introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, originally from Indiana in the States. Lovely Indiana. Lovely Indiana. Where's Where's Valparaiso in relation to like Indianapolis or in, where, where does it fall in the state exactly? It's it's in the northwest corner, closer to Chicago, maybe three hours drive northwest. Got, got it. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know in case anyone listening is planning on stopping by. The reason I reached out is, of course, I came across uh, your blog article, How Austerity Destroyed the British Empire. I, I think the British Empire probably offers the closest comparison to the global position of the United States today. Is that... Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, Britain was definitely the strongest state during that period. It was never quite as powerful as the United States is now, but it, it was definitely the strongest state in the 19th century. Yeah. And and the interesting thing is, of course, you, know, you have this huge military power, this huge economic power. And in the 1820s, or right, right thereabouts, they they incur a massive amount of debt. And can you can you explain a little bit about the debt situation and how they got themselves there? Yeah, in the 1800s, France tried to expand in Europe and Britain mm-hmm. got involved in containing France during the Napoleonic Wars and preventing France from being able to expand and dominate the European continent. But it was very, very expensive for Britain to do this. Britain is traditionally a naval power. It had to build a large land army to engage the French in Portugal, in Spain, uh, in the Netherlands. And all of this was very expensive. And it caused Britain's debt as a percentage of GDP to go up over 250% at one point, Mm -hmm. which for, for context is 
more than twice the current U.S. level. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say for everybody scared of the U.S. debt, that's going to give them hives. And it, the the interesting thing I see, too, and I'll, I'll share the chart from your blog article uh, on uh, in the show notes. But, you know, the interesting thing I see is you know, starting in around 1700, it, that debt to GDP ratio keeps ticking up and really hits the the over 100 percent mark sometime in the mid 1700s. And and then, of course, during the Napoleonic Wars, just skyrockets. Can you comment on that the the buildup in debt prior to that? Because obviously they were starting from a pretty high floor uh, when the when they when they got involved in containing the French. Yeah, throughout the 18th century, there were a series of wars, often featuring France, in which Britain had to shell out a lot of money. So early mm-hmm. uh, in the in the 18th century, there's the War of Spanish Secession in which France tries to unify with Spain so that it can be a gigantic, massive power. Mm-hmm. And Britain, again, uh, has to try to prevent that from happening and expends a lot of resources and goes into a lot of debt, preventing France from unifying with Spain. Mm-hmm. Later on, you get what in the States we call the French and Indian War and what the British call the Seven Years War, in which France fights a global conflict with Britain. And Britain, again, spends a huge amount of money defending its colonies in India, in the Americas, and also fighting a lot with France on the continent too. Uh, Then in the American Revolution, the British have to spend a lot of money trying to prevent the American colonies from becoming independent. And of course, France gets involved in that conflict in a bid to weaken Britain. So at multiple times in the 1700s, the British get in these very expensive wars and it all culminates in the most expensive showdown with France, the Napoleonic Wars, which go on for a couple of decades, mm. off and on. Yeah, you know, this, as you were talking, that was something I was going to say, which is, you know, it, it seems like the British and the French just both kind of indebted themselves over the 1700s by getting into either these direct or these proxy wars. One of the bigger contributors to the revolutionary effort from a financial standpoint were the French, right? Yes, at great cost to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because now, and again, I know we're getting a little off topic, but my understanding is that whole that that opens up a whole nother story leading to the French Revolution. Correct? Yes, it's definitely a contributing factor. Okay, so we'll get back on track here, but I think that's worth noting for everybody listening. We get to the two hundred fifty percent debt to GDP ratio around eighteen twenty. And then Britain decides it's probably time to do something about this mountain of debt. What prompted that decision? I mean, obviously, trees don't grow to the sky, but something had to happen where they decided we should probably pay this off. Well, the British were still locked into the old gold standard. And if you're locked into the old gold standard, if you continually ramp up debt, it becomes hard to maintain the pegging of the currency to gold. And so they're put into a bind where they have to choose between getting rid of that pegging to gold, or if they're going to maintain it, then they've got to do something to defend the value of the pound and prevent it from falling off pays. Got it. Interesting. One of the things we've been talking about in in the series that I've done so far this month uh, is the idea that uh, one of the things that makes debt more perilous, I think, is when you're locked into the gold standard or is when your currency is pegged to some other asset. And it sounds like that was 
that was almost an issue that forced Britain's hand in a way. Is that fair? Yeah, because when a state perceives itself as needing to maintain a particular pegging, Mm -hmm. that really constrains your policy because if you're not willing to let the currency free float and move around a little bit, if you're very committed to the idea that any decrease in the value of the currency is a problem, mm-hmm. uh, that really limits your policy flexibility. Did Britain have the freedom to maybe let things float a little bit back in that time, or was that just not something nations could do? Theoretically, they could have, but it wasn't something that was widely considered at that time. Uh, the gold standard was a way of legitimating the monetary policy of the country. It was a way of inducing people to trust the currency. Mm -hmm. And you still hear a lot of people today complain about fiat currency. It doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to them to be tied to anything, uh, and they don't trust it. That was a bigger problem at that time than it is now. A lot of people were really hard-pressed to trust a currency that wasn't tied to precious metals, not for any particularly good reason, but just because it, it made the money feel more real to them. Mm-hmm. In the United States in the 1800s, there was an attempt to uh, allow silver coinage in an attempt to expand the money supply. And the thought was, well, we can't get people to drop the gold standard, but perhaps we can get them to also coin money in silver. And then that would enable us to have a larger supply of money. Uh, it, it didn't end up coming off despite a lot of lobbying from the silver industry. But this is the paradigm that we were kind of stuck in at that time. Got it. It seems to be more of a psychological system or a psychological barrier than it is a a, a legitimate economic one. Am I wrong yeah. there? Or? Yeah, that's right. Got it. So the 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 British get to two hundred fifty percent debt to GDP ratio. They decide it's time to pay it off. They don't want to let their currency free free float. They want to keep it tied to uh, the price of gold, and so they decide to engage in or go down the path of austerity. This this part I'm I'm really interested in hearing. What did public spending look like back then? Because obviously we didn't have like the welfare state we have today. Where did uh, governments such as the British Empire? Where did they shave from? Well, there was much less public spending during that time than there is now, but mm-hmm. there was expenditure on what was called the system of the poor laws, uh, money that was given out to very poor people to prevent them from starving. Mm-hmm. And there, one of the things that did happen during this period was a set of reforms to the poor laws, which reduced the amount of money that was paid out to the very, very poor landless okay. people. Okay. Uh, that, that's one of the cuts. The main thing during this period, it's, it's less about cuts than it is about not making expenditures that other states are making. So other states during this period, like Germany or the United States, will make significant investments in infrastructure, in education. And in general, the British will not make those investments or they'll make them later or smaller. Mm. Okay. And you can see that very much in terms of, for instance, what happens in Canada and Australia and a lot of the British territories. These territories are not very heavily settled during this century. There isn't a real effort on the part of Britain to intensively develop them. Uh, the university system uh, that is the premier university system in the mid-1800s becomes the German system rather than the British. Oxford and Cambridge for a while fall behind the German universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the kinds of areas where Britain pays a price. It sounds like what social programs there were 
suffered, but really the the bigger impact is the is the lack of investment in the future. Yeah. Was there any impact to the UK's credit creditworthiness during this period of time or anything like that? Well, they they worked so hard to defend the value of the currency that they mm-hmm. kind of overdid it. Uh, mm-hmm. One pound in 1815 was equivalent to 62 pence in 1900, a cumulative deflation of 38%. Mm-hmm. So they not only prevented the currency from falling in value, the currency went up in value. And that had a negative effect on economic growth because when the currency is rising in value, that means that people stand a gain from sitting on their money and not using it to do anything. Yeah, the whole deflationary spiral. Part of the reason we're, we're, we're focusing on this story uh, is, again, because right now in the United States, we have some big choices to make. And frankly, I don't think they're uniquely uh, American problems either. I think every developed nation uh, is dealing in their own way with the issue of carrying debt. We as a, as a nation have a choice as we go forward to uh, either use our position as the world's reserve currency to fuel more investment or to take this path of, of austerity and, uh, and, and again, remove ourselves or, or, or forgo those investments. Uh, obviously, in you know, 2009, during the financial crisis, uh, we chose the path of stimulus. You know, we chose uh, the, the troubled asset relief, relief program, and we chose QE2. And you know, all those were, were efforts to stabilize the financial system and, and, and facilitated by debt. Now, the UK took a different turn. You know, the UK chose a path of austerity. And do you see some, obviously you're, you're sitting in the UK now, so you, you have a a better view on this than I do. Do you see any, do you see any similarities between what Britain experienced back during that period and maybe what they're experiencing now, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of their, you know, their, their austerity strategy? Yeah, there's been a lack of investment in infrastructure in Britain, and it's been hurting productivity in Britain over the last decade. Britain's productivity growth rate has been lower than expected. In general, in most of the rich states in the last 10 years, productivity growth has been lower than expected. But in the Mm -hmm. British case, it's been exceptionally low. Mm -hmm. And that depresses wage growth, uh, depresses economic growth. At this point, Britain has got uh, a lot of rail infrastructure, road infrastructure that is outdated, uh, relatively poor quality internet access compared to a lot of mainland European states. These kinds of things really are not helping. They started raising money for the universities through a tuition-based system, but that hasn't largely been pumped into personnel. It's, It's gone toward constructing elaborate buildings. So I think the university system has also paid a price. Got it. And I know one of the things you mentioned in your article too is how investments in education specifically are a lagging indicator. So you're not going to see the impact that has on the economy for 20 to 30 years to come, right? Yeah. It takes a while to educate a generation of children uh, in an ineffective way and for that to show up in the economy. After 20 years, you'll only just begin to see an initial cohort of people filtering in who don't have the skills that you need. 
Mm-hmm. When you get 40 or 50 years out, that's when you'll begin to really see the effects of the policy. So when you make this kind of underinvestment, it takes a very long time to pay the full price. Yeah. Yeah. And another another chart I'll, I'll share in the show notes as well is you have a chart in terms of relative share of world wealth. So basically, you know, what what was the British Empire's share of global wealth as compared to other major powers? So France, Prussia, Russia, and so on. Did that choice not to invest, do you feel that had a meaningful impact on Britain's share of global wealth over the long term? Yeah, absolutely. You see, it it goes uh, from, in 1870, close to almost 60% uh, their share of, of world wealth. And by 1900, it's dropped under 20%. I think uh, oftentimes when we think about the decline of the British Empire, people think about the times when Britain lost territory in you know, 1947 when India is going or uh, when the United States breaks, breaks off or when Canada and Australia become dominions. But the real period of decline is in that back half of the 1800s when they really pay the cost for their underinvestment earlier in the century, immediately after the Napoleonic Wars. As, as I look at this too, it seems like like you know, Prussia certainly uh, skyrocketed in terms of share of global wealth over the uh, over that period of time as well. Were there investments they made that Britain didn't that led to that uh, ascension? Yeah, the Germans were working very hard during this period on catching up. They thought it was very important uh, first to catch up to France because they kept being invaded by the French uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, and then to try to compete with the British internationally, in in the seas and in the colonial space. And they spent an awful lot of money trying to goose their own industrial production. Uh, They spent a lot of money building infrastructure, and they developed a really first-rate university system that was the envy of the world for a few decades. Again, if there's there's a lesson to be learned from all this, then uh, it sounds like the, the thing nations should probably worry about more than their balance sheet, and obviously balance sheet should be a concern, but the thing they should worry about more is, are they investing for the future? Is that is that fair, would you say? Yeah. Infrastructure and education are so essential to mm-hmm. maintaining the economic growth and power of a state, and uh, especially in, in this day and age. And if you neglect mm-hmm. those things, you're not going to be able to hold your edge when other states are making those investments. Yeah. And, and and kind of getting back to the modern day example then. So we have Britain, which has chosen a path of austerity. And so if this trend continues, we can imagine that in the next few decades, Britain's role in the world as an economic power, at least, will probably be diminished. Uh, and I'm sure Brexit is not going to help there. In the United States, we, we're having a similar debate here where we don't seem to have lost our appetite for taking on more and more debt, uh, but we also don't seem eager to spend or eager to invest. Do you feel like as you look at the world today, are there nations that are maybe being, are there nations that are taking the the, the path of Prussia, so to speak, in, in terms of their investment in areas that will ultimately bear fruit in the decades to come? Well, China, for instance, is working very, very hard to update all of its systems. It's mm-hmm. uh, investing a lot all around the world, we, we hear about China buying things in the United States. And the purpose of this is to raise money so that China can improve its schools, can improve 
its uh, road networks. I mm-hmm. all the time I get emails from Chinese education firms offering me quite large amounts of money if I will teach Chinese students on the side as a as a kind of freelance thing. And it really? amazes me that I get offers from China all the time to do that, but no Western state ever makes those kinds of offers to me. Yeah. And now are these universities offering you this or is it, uh, you know, private entities, maybe like, you know, wealthy people or, or whatnot? High schools. Really? High schools. Really? Yeah. And do you, do they offer to move you there then? Or, or can you do it remotely? How does that work? They're happy for me to do it remotely if I'm willing. And they want, and they just want to learn about Western history. Is that right? They they want to get their students university ready. They know they don't have the personnel there to accomplish that, and they are willing to make use of anybody who's willing to help them. So you're you're obviously in Cambridge. It's globally well known university. Are you seeing a lot of your your counterparts getting the same kinds of offers? Or yeah, yeah. The job market for academics, if you're willing to go to China is a lot better than it is in the West. Yeah. And just to to add some perspective on it, so you're getting your PhD and your choices once you get that PhD are either to teach or w- what are your other options there? PhD students sometimes go work for think tanks and other kinds of organizations, mm-hmm. uh, nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they do writing books, articles, other kinds of things. So as you kind of look at your career options, is is China an attractive option for you now? Well, it's financially quite attractive. It would be a, a, a big switch to, to move out there. And I, it would take a lot of money to get me to move uh, to China, <laughs> a lot of money. But the thing is that China is making an effort to offer that kind of money and other states aren't. Well, that's fascinating. That's that's absolutely fascinating. Are there any other countries out there doing the same thing, or is it really China's just the one? Uh, you see, you see Singapore uh, making making those kinds of efforts, but uh, mm-hmm. the one that I keep seeing is China. That is super interesting. So I guess then, and again, I'll I'll ask you this with the understanding. I'll edit it out if you if you're not comfortable or if you don't have a clear you know a good answer. But I guess if you if you look at the U.S. today. And we're trying to grade how much are we like the British Empire in the 1820s? Where are we right now? Well, our share of of world wealth is is quite high at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're 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 still quite a ways up there. Uh, I, I would say the major difference is that the British had a lot of naval power, but a more, much more limited ability than us to project power on land mm-hmm. uh, because of our very advanced air force and mm-hmm. and you know as we've been seeing recently capacity to drop bombs all over the planet yeah. um, mm-hmm. we have a level of power that exceeds theirs but I, I would say it's it's that's about as close a comparison as you're going to get and so from our financial situation do you feel like when you look at the US do you feel we're headed down that path or do you feel we're sort of in an entirely different area right now well, I think we still have a choice, and uh, mm-hmm. we're in a better situation for making the choice because we're not trapped on the gold standard. But mm-hmm. all around us, I think we can already see some of the symptoms that uh, we're, we're starting to get behind on investing for the future. If you look mm-hmm. at our infrastructure, you talk to the Army Corps of Engineers, we're in a big hole on our roads, our bridges, our railroads, our airports. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
conversely, if you look at the uh, the school system, mm-hmm. we've got creeping privatization in the schools. And when people start to privatize the schools, that means that the state is not doing an adequate job of investing in good quality schools, so much so that parents with the resources are looking to send their kids elsewhere and willing to out of pocket contribute to alternative institutions. Once that starts to happen, and there was a lot of private schooling going on in Britain in the the 19th century, that really indicates that the state is not getting the job done on education. Yeah. Yeah. Folks are, you folks are voting with their wallets effectively. Yeah. The, the other thing we have coming up and and I would say this is again, a a global issue uh, and one that, that impacts China probably more than anyone is we have a demographic shift that I, I don't think has ever been seen before in human history. So, when you look at the federal budget, obviously there's a huge chunk that's military, but the the bigger portion or the 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 bigger portion of the uh, federal budget or, a, or or the greatest portion uh, has to deal with caring for our aging population, um, and uh, and that seems to be the case again across a developed world. You know, does does history offer us any? insight into how to deal with that problem. History can't help us very much with that because we've never before in our history had such an old population. One of Mm -hmm. the things that's very distinctive about now is just how high the median age is in Western states. Uh, My supervisor, David Runciman, has, has written and talked a bit about this. It makes it very difficult for us to make the kinds of changes and investments that we would otherwise make. A lot of our young people want to be invested in, want uh, this kind of stuff to be available to them. And older people who no longer have a stake in those systems are going to be more interested in creating uh, a very, very lavish healthcare system that costs an awful lot of money. At this point, we're spending in the United States 17% of GDP on healthcare, mm-hmm. which is unprecedented for any rich state uh, at any point in history to spend anything like that much. And that has some dividends in terms of medical research, but there's a lot of inefficiency there. We've got a lot of young people who are being employed in the healthcare sector who not to be doing something else that contributes more to the future of the country. Yeah. Do you think too, obviously productivity growth has been an issue since around 2000, I think. Do, does that, do you think that's having any impact on productivity growth? Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, just to make sure I'm clear and to make sure everyone listening is clear, you know, effectively what you have is this diversion of resources to caring for the elderly that could otherwise be moved to maybe more productive means. Not to put it like so cold and mathematically, but... It's, it's very difficult to have a dynamic society that is adapting to uh, the future when so much of the resources are caught up in caring for those who have helped us get here. Yeah. And we respect and value those who have helped us get here, um, but it becomes very difficult for us to keep moving forward with the project that they left to us if we have to expend so much of our resources today on 
that. Yeah. What do you think? Like, what what would you say we should be focused on then? I would I would try to make the healthcare system more efficient. Uh, I, I don't think that we can dramatically reduce the amount that we spend on on healthcare, but we could make it more efficient. We could probably get it down a few percentage points of GDP by moving to a a system that's more efficient than the one we've got. Britain has an aging population too, but only spends 10% of GDP on healthcare. There are, uh, and they have a life expectancy that is on average two years longer than ours, despite that. So Mm -hmm. it is possible to run a healthcare system that still does a reasonably good job of taking care of older people without spending quite so much money on it. What do you think, what do you think some of the things that we could be doing differently are? Well, I I think that we really need a a huge, huge investment in infrastructure. We need a big infrastructure spending bill. I think part of the reason a lot of people were attracted to Donald Trump was that he promised to do that, but Mm -hmm. it hasn't materialized. uh, And if it doesn't materialize, we're just going to get into a deeper and deeper hole on that front. We already, I think, even if we spent a trillion dollars on infrastructure uh, over the next 10 years, I think we would still be playing from behind. Got it. Um, and you know, then you look at our education system. This is something that the federal government has less direct influence over because it's happening on a state-by-state basis. And part of the trouble is that individual U.S. states don't have the ability to borrow in the way that the federal government can because individual U.S. states don't control the currency. And so there needs to be some source of additional revenue for our schools. and whether the feds are going to come up with that or the states are going to uh, you know, remains to be seen. But what we can't afford to have is what we've had over the last 20 or 30 years, which is this race to the bottom where the states are competing with each other to attract business investment. And mm-hmm. so they're cutting their taxes to the bone to try to get businesses to come over. And that leaves them with very little money for their schools. And it's increasingly pushing them to run these bare bones school systems that don't pay teachers well enough. And that Mm -hmm. deters capable people from going into the teaching profession in large numbers. Yeah. Yeah. In in a lot of ways, it, 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 it seems like the, the incentive structure of a state and, and by a state, I mean, we're talking the United States. So, so an individual state in the U.S., you know, their incentive structure is not to invest for 20 years down the line because those kids could very well go and move somewhere else. You know, their incentive structure is for how do we increase tax revenue now? And it almost seems like it would make more sense to really, as controversial as this might be, to take at least the greater portion of responsibility for education from a funding standpoint from the states and put that really on on the part of the federal government because I don't quite see you know just knowing how state governments operate they're not necessarily incentivized to 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 build for the future no they're really not they're, they're trying to win elections and if you attract a, a company to move to your state Mm -hmm. Uh, that often is going to be more helpful to you in winning an election than making some kind of investment for the future, which won't fully pay off in 40 or 50 years. Yeah, I think that's, and I'll pontificate a bit here, but I think one of the more depressing things about society in the US today is that there's there's this perspective that 
the way a government program justifies itself or what makes a government program quote unquote good is its ability to turn a profit. And there's really no concept of human welfare. There's no concept of morals. This is the right thing to do. Uh, and it seems like when we endorse policies and and when we elect people into office, it, it seems like there's, there's all, there always seems to be a profit motive around public policy. Would you say that's a fair... I mean, you're looking at us from the outside now, obviously. Is that a fair description of US politics and policymaking as it stands? Yeah, and it's it's in part because of this conflation we've done increasingly over the last 40 or 50 years between mm-hmm. business and uh, really everything. We, we are treating everything like a business now. Yeah. And therefore, we're evaluating everything by the criteria that businesses use to evaluate themselves. Mm-hmm. And the whole purpose of having something be publicly run, having a, a public investment in something, is that it's the kind of thing that private individuals aren't incentivized to do at scale in an effective way, right? Mm-hmm. So private individuals are never incentivized at scale in an effective way to educate the whole population. A family might be incentivized to spend a bit to educate their own children, but that only accounts for the families that have the extra money to make that investment on their own. Mm -hmm. It's not going to account for the vast bulk of families who are not going to be able to support independent schools with their own private funds. Uh, The same is true for roads, railroads, internet, uh, infrastructure. These are things that you can't really manage on your own. Uh, At one point, uh, this is 15 years ago, Indiana leased its toll road to a foreign conglomerate. And the foreign conglomerate went bust trying to run a toll road that had already been built, Mm -hmm. let alone build a a new toll road. Uh, it's, It's difficult for private companies even to manage existing infrastructure, let alone build any of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that I, I take this up with the healthcare argument all the time, which is we we're kind of constantly looking to turn lead into gold with healthcare and somehow create a market that is efficient and profitable. But the reality is, is that you know, in order for a market to be efficient and profitable, it has to be governed somewhat by the law of supply and demand, and I'm not going to wait until the price of kidneys go down before I get a transplant. You know, it's just, it's, it's, and I think that is, that's most government services uh, as well. Um, You know, one thing I I wanted to to jump back on was you, you mentioned Trump's election a little bit. We've talked about Brexit and there's very obviously a very populist uh, wave going on uh, globally and, and in countries that, are seemingly unrelated to each other. Like Brazil is a great example where they're entirely disconnected um, from many of the pressures we're dealing with here. Um, if we go back to that, to that, to the to the 1800s, was there was there a, a similar ripple effect like that, or not so much because the government didn't have as much involvement in people's lives then? Yeah, there there was a. a- Yeah, there was. You had a lot of anarchists and communists getting very upset in the late late 1800s over the condition Mm -hmm. of people in Britain and in a lot of other countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, 
big communist movements, and those movements became uh, a significant problem for a lot of states in the 20th century. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, fascism emerges in large part as an effort to prevent communists from taking over states. The chief boogeyman that a lot of fascists point to during their rise in the 1900s is the threat of a communist takeover. So these people who are feeling a lot of resentment toward their states because they're not being taken care of by them mm-hmm. do do tend to look for alternatives. And today those alternatives look different from the alternatives of the past, but mm-hmm. you know, that's what increasingly people do. They look for alternatives. Yeah. Do you think that do, do you think that signifies kind of the breakdown of a system overall? Cuz like, you know, when I look if if we go back a little further, so we go back to around the period of the 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 Amer- the US revolution. There's this wave of disruption across governments globally. So for example, you know, obviously the the American Revolution had a fairly large impact on on the British. Uh the French Revolution was was soon to follow. Um and and it, it 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 seems as if when it seems as if when you see these and, and I'll ask for your opinion on this, but you know it seems to me that like there are these peaks and valleys of conflict and and that that occur when sort of like a, an economic mechanism breaks down. Am I making sense here or, or or no? I think states there are certain expectations that people have for their states, and yeah. when those expectations are not met persistently over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. People lose faith in their states. They lose faith in their institutions and in their governments, and they start looking for something else. Yeah. And sometimes they find something to believe in, and, and sometimes they don't. I think today, the alternatives that have emerged are not as compelling to people as the alternatives that emerged in the 1800s and 1900s were. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people really believed in communism and fascism, and there aren't very many people who believe in undemocratic forms of government now in a straightforward mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people who support these uh, populist leaders are still Democrats in some sense. They still think mm-hmm. that these people are legitimate because they win elections, mm-hmm. and not for other kinds of reasons. Yeah. So I don't think that the alternatives are as comprehensive or as total now as they were, but it does create a space for new kinds of political movements, for realignments, mm-hmm. for things that were not electable uh, and not stuff you could run on in the past to become viable politically now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boundaries of what is possible are shifting in ways that they haven't for quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also think that we have to worry about other possibilities, like you know, people just giving up. If people mm-hmm. can't find alternatives to believe in, and those alternatives don't produce something better for them, uh, people can just give up. Uh, and I, you know, at that point, there's another historical comparison I would make, which is to the late Roman Empire during mm-hmm. the time of Saint Augustine, where he says, "Don't look to the city of man, because nothing can come out of that. Uh, turn instead to the city of God." Uh, that. That kind of thinking is another possibility when people for very long periods of time feel neglected. They just kind of give up on on politics and turn to family, turn to those around them, turn to spirituality, Mm -hmm. uh, other ways of making life worthwhile. Is there a historical example of such a a period where it doesn't result in either total collapse or people trying to kill each other? Or is that just kind of the way things go? 
Uh, historically, it's usually tended to produce some kind of massive collapse or, or crisis eventually. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to imagine how that might play out now because the world in, in some ways is quite different uh, with nuclear weapons, with states that are much more developed and powerful than ever before, that are much more heavily armed than ever mm-hmm. before in our history. It's an open question whether we are willing to fight with each other in the way that we fought with each other in the past because the stakes are so much higher now. Yeah, it was so a couple months ago I did a whole series on uh the US military budget. And you know, one of the conclusions that I came to in looking at the history and looking at the data was that we've reached a point now where wars are so destructive that that they're they're just stupid to declare. Like we've almost hit peak war in a way where for example, China and the United States aren't going to fight against each other. There's just it would just be far too destructive. There is too much to lose in China and the United States having a military conflict, uh, just due to the sh- just due to the size of their militaries and their destructive capabilities. Um, the interesting thing, though, is you know if you look, so around World War II is really the last major inter intrastate conflict. Or I should say, yeah, the last great power interest- conflict. Yeah, exactly. Great power conflict. Exactly. It's it's really the last conflict between, uh, you know, two or between multiple major powers. And if you look at the death toll, it's just enormous. Of course. Now, as we go into the latter half of the 20th century and into the first half of this one, you know, what we start to see is that these wars start to the the number of wars between states decreases greatly but the number of civil wars or the or the percentage of quote unquote war deaths that takes place during civil wars is the vast majority uh and so a lot of ways it seems that you know large scale violence has almost been reserved to the failed state um and i would say that still of course opens up the door for one of those failed states to get a hold of a nuke or get a hold of something that can really unleash some serious damage uh, on uh, on us or on another country. Well, traditionally, when things have really become locked up and it's not possible for us to move forward, when institutions have really broken down and become dysfunctional, the way that we have gotten out of that historically is by killing each other and making new institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been a very costly way to get out of bad institutions that don't work for us. We've not found ways consistently historically to peacefully revolutionize our institutions. Mm-hmm. So when we get stuck with institutions that don't work, when we get trapped by that dysfunction, we tend to get out of it with violence. We're mm-hmm. now at a period in our history where if we try to get out of our institutional dysfunction with violence, the cost will be unfathomably vast. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is on us to find a way to do something which human beings have never really been able to do before, which Mm -hmm. is to find ways to get our institutions to work without killing each other when they've Mm -hmm. become very sclerotic and dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the real challenge of our century. Yeah. Is there anyone doing that well? Because obviously we're I mean, pass fail, America's failing. So is there is there any country out there that you think is navigating this better than others? 
I don't think anybody's doing a great job of it. Uh, Some states are in very different periods in their development, so the stakes are a bit different. For instance, in the Chinese case, China has a lot of people uh, who live in rural areas that can be moved to cities, and if they're moved to cities, they'll get a lot more productive very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's relatively straightforward how to produce a certain amount of economic growth in China. Mm -hmm. But- China hasn't yet achieved the level of economic development that we're at, so it isn't dealing with precisely the same problems that we're dealing with, mm-hmm. the aging population, the yeah. uh, collapse of manufacturing in favor of uh, service industry, uh, increasingly perhaps in the future automation of jobs. Uh, these mm-hmm. are things that, that China isn't heavily dealing with yet, so I would be reluctant to pick it out. Yeah. Among the rich states that are at a relatively similar level of development, I don't think anybody's found a solution yet. I almost think that we're that we're headed for some post-capitalist era effectively as to what that looks like who knows. Um but it just seems with the level of innovation and the level of disruption, most people entering the workforce today are going to have to come to grips with the fact that whatever skills they were educated for are going to be outmoded in 10 years and they're going to need to adapt. And if the state can't facilitate that, it's going to be very, very challenging for people to keep up. Um, And Yeah, we're entering a period where Healthcare costs are rising because the population is aging, and we want to develop technology at a pace which will force people to get re-educated multiple mm-hmm. times during their career to be prepared for new for new jobs. Yeah. And if we don't do that, they're going to be cast adrift and uh, deeply resentful because of that. And yeah. we talk about a college education like it's something that you get once early in your life, and and then you're done with it. But if we're going to develop technologically at the speed that people want us to develop at, we're going to need to educate people two or three times. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to ask somebody to pay to go to school once. It's quite another thing to ask someone to pay to go to school two or three times because the world around them is changing faster than anybody plans for. So in this episode, we saw that in its effort to pay down the debt, The UK deferred investments in education and infrastructure that eventually allowed Prussia to eclipse it in terms of manufacturing and military prowess. And if we look at the modern age, we should ask the question, which one are we? Now, the message I'm getting in each of these episodes is that debt is important, but where we choose to spend that money is equally important as well. And if we invest for the future, putting money towards infrastructure and education, for example, we can expect that to have a positive impact on GDP in the long run. Uh, If we invest the bulk of our budget in military power and retirement obligations, such as we're doing now, we're eventually going to see the funding sources for both dwindle. And it presents a huge issue in a rapidly aging world where we can expect a greater amount of our budget to fund retirement programs. And, And that's something that's gonna happen worldwide. So to discuss that more in depth, next week, I've got Tara Sinclair, Professor of Economics and International Affairs at George Washington University to talk about our current budgetary plight and how we might address it intelligently. I hope you'll join me. As always, theme music by Fellertack. Production courtesy of Master of My Universe, the big Gino, Jason Putney. And of course, 
Soon to come is our website, ydhty.com. Always just a week away. Bookmark it in the event this illusion becomes a reality. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off.